the word marginalization has come to imply a certain amount of suffering. But are the margins also sometimes a secret source of humor and joy? Some of the funniest, strangest, and most beautiful things I've read in books haven't been the words of the author, but the words scribbled by the readers in the book's margins. Many of history's most influential artists started out on the margins of society, born into poverty, despised, or worse, ignored. How did those people overcome underdog status to end up leading the cultural vanguard? Did it have something to do with the freedom associated with being an outsider? This is Mixed Media, a podcast by Kavi Gupta. My name is Philip Barcio. In this episode, I talk with Suchitra Matai, a Guyanese-American artist whose circumstances have positioned her in an assortment of margins. As an immigrant and a woman who has struggled with illness and spent most of her career living and working far from the main art market centers, Matai maximized the space and time offered by her outsider status to materialize what I believe to be one of the most idiosyncratic, subversive, and joyful visual positions in contemporary art. Matai's newest solo exhibition recently opened at Kavi Gupta, Elizabeth Street, in Chicago. Titled Osmosis, the exhibition features work that employs salt as a sculptural medium. The material empowers Matai's aesthetic expressions of emergence and loss as they relate to her family's Indo-Caribbean ocean migration and the layering of new stories and cultural traditions atop those that already exist. Serious topics, but also areas in which Matai finds an enormous storehouse of humor and joy. The humor begins with the Hotmail account. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even notice that before. Now you've drawn my attention to it. I'm never going to forget it. What's that word for people who like reject technology? I forget the word. Oh, is there like an academic word? You're obviously not that, but it is. I'm not that. You know, you're just nostalgic. Yes, there, there. I like that. I like that word. So um, you have an exhibition this fall at Kavi Gupta in Chicago, and it's called Osmosis. And you're working with a material that's new to your practice, which is salt. And osmosis is a key scientific process that is related to salt. So um, I am not in any way qualified to give like a lecture on osmosis. Uh, are you? Um, no, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend to be. But there are two sort of crystallizing moments, if you will, um, that brought me to osmosis, to salt and to osmosis. I wanted to capture a sense of the past that alluded to the ocean, right? I wanted to capture something about the ocean migrations, about ocean migrations. So many of us have had those, right? Have experienced those. Our ancestors have experienced those. And, you know, my work is so much about capturing folk tales, mythology, uh, stories, um, and thinking about their transmutations and their shifts and their, what I, because what I remember of them, what I remember of what I've, what my grandparents shared with me is so fragmented. And so this whole show has a sense of like fragmentation. So back to salt and osmosis. During the large tsunami in South and Southeast Asia, uh, many years ago, in Mahabalipuram, in South of India, fishermen saw 
an entire temple complex be revealed because of the tsunami, took back the waters and revealed this beautiful temple complex under the water. And then within minutes, it was gone, reburied. It surfaced and then was completely gone. And you know, this idea of what's revealed and what's concealed, this tension is something that I've explored in a lot of the work because as an immigrant, there's a lot that you know you want to use, I hate this word, but assimilate, but you also want to sort of preserve the history of what you know and the culture that you know. And so it relates sort of that re revealing and concealing has always been a part of my work and my practice in general. But this idea of linking back to mythology and to stories and the partial accuracy of memories and whatnot, this story really kind of um, instigated a lot of thought for me. And so I started thinking about materials that have had, you know, this kind of potency in relation to the ocean, in relation to migrations, and I came up with salt. And so in the exhibition, you'll find um, sculptures that relate and have as their composition salt. And, you know, the idea of osmosis, there's a play there. You know, we were joking about this idea about learning through osmosis that people, you know, joke about. But the, there's something to it, right? I think, like, no matter what cultural context you are raised in, a lot of those aspects linger with you, even if you want to shed them. And so there's this constant negotiating of past and present, of these multiple cultures. and so in the non-scientific sense of osmosis, you know, that's one way to think about it. So osmosis is like pulling water out of something, right? Yes. Salt actually instigates the process of osmosis. And so in that connection, that's the other connection the kind of scientific physical connection. That's fascinating thinking about the waves going away from the shore and the tsunami is a pulling of water, not by salt, but by what gravity and by gravity, like yeah, yeah, yeah. tectonic shifts. Yeah. And then this pushing and pulling of how you described being pushed and pulled also by your own past, by the things you would love to shed, but how they become crystallized. Totally. The idea of salt as healer is also something that's important for me in the exhibition. I'm certain you must have thought also about salt as currency. I know that, you know, going back, we were talking about like the Ottoman Empire, which replaced the Byzantine Empire, which replaced the Roman Empire, which replaced, you know, the Greeks, everything that colonial society traces its roots back to, there's a point where salt was the currency, like you paid soldiers in salt. Yes, yeah. colonial currency, it's always had potency. Of course, there was also Gandhi's salt march. You know, there are all these moments in history where salt comes to the fore. And so I think it seemed to be, to me, a substance that really made sense in the logic of the exhibition. You've recreated that temple in the context of this show, right? So when people come to the show, are they going to see this sunken temple in the space? Yes, they will. <laughs> Earlier this year, really about la uh, the end of last year, I had started thinking about the tapestries that I make in relation to architecture and to think about how to use the fabric um, as a means to encourage and instigate movement through a form. And so 
I have a work up at the Kohler Art Center right now where, that is uh, in the round. It's a cylinder made of tapestries that you walk into and it becomes almost like a womb. There's uh, a change in the type of fabric as you walk in. And then as you look up, there's a video projection of the Atlantic Ocean that I actually took footage of when I crossed the Middle Passage on a ship. Long story. But the point is that I've been thinking a lot about architecture and how to use some of the materials that I use to create this architecture. I have always been interested, as you know, in craft, in materials, in repetitive processes. And so I've always been struck by how people, artisans and guilds, created these, uh, created temples, you know, created, created these structures. And so the temple for me, uh, which is partially made of salt, salt is one of its uh, materials, becomes, because of it, its position coming kind of in a forced way out of the floor, it's like an allusion to the past and a movement towards like a different kind of future. And the space of the whole exhibition is, you know, I use the morphology of the temple uh, to construct it. And so in a, in, a, in a Hindu temple, there's the Garbha Griha, which is the, the most sacred space. And so there's a play of the sacred and the profane. And in the, in the space that I'm creating the exhibition with you all, that temple sits in the back in that space. By putting that piece in that space in the gallery and the, the story you just told it, that reminds me of Malevich's, you know, early abstractions and his first show of like black square and black cross, these like simple abstractions and how he hung them in his original exhibition of those in such a way that like, this is where the Russian icon painting would hang in a church. So this is where I'm hanging it in the gallery. Really? It's a really nice additional layer of thinking about what is it that we seek when we think about spirituality? And what is it that we seek when we think about art? I love that. I think there's more to be explored in that arena. And I think this idea of the historical function of these religious spaces, but in a way what they mean for us now. Do you know what I mean? If you're not religious or if you have this past that you want to have a connection to, like how do you deal with these bigger cultural icons within your past that you don't necessarily connect with in a religious way, you know? Okay, so one of the things I've been thinking about is that religion in, in you know, Hinduism in India right now, there's the Hindutva movement and it's so politically charged and there's so much animosity to people of other religions. It's a huge, huge problem right now. And so I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about, a lot of Hindus are thinking about that space of religion and what it means for them and how to extricate it from the violence. You mentioned a few minutes ago your woven tapestries and the material you make those out of. Vintage saris intersects in kind of a funny or absurd way with some of the things you're talking about, about religiosity and um, secularism and myths and storytelling. The history of the sari extends back more than 7,000 years. Farther in time than what some religions concede is like the entire history of human, the human race. Like you've got, you've got certain Judeo-Christian traditions that say the world is like 5,000 years old or thereabouts. 
the fundamental item of clothing we associate with India is evidently 2,000 years older than the world, according to like Judeo-Christian religions. Right, 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 right. right. I don't know exactly what to unpack there, but it is funny to think about. Yeah, I think there is that um, that moment. I think I think of those the the larger tapestries and the smaller woods too, but as monuments, right? I mean, there's a lot of like talk about monuments and I think monuments come in so many different forms. And I think if you're making a monument, uh, you know, to the South Asian woman, what using the vintage saris becomes like a natural course, like a natural uh, material in which to do so. So the vintage saris you're using in your work, I mean, some, some of them you're specific that this is your mother's vintage sari or your grandmother's vintage sari or your vintage sari. Um, but are some of these vintage saris that you're using like thousand or two thousand or three thousand year old saris or that's a great question no so their vintages are different right but they're they're mostly from the last 50 years i'd say and so the ones i use are generally the ones i weave with are generally uh not fancy fancy saris right they're the ones of every day uh i want them to point in a way to the labor of women and so, uh, yeah, they don't have the kind of gilding, the, I mean, the kind of gold uh, threads and, and whatnot that a lot of uh, the very fancy saris and the heavy saris have. But the important thing is that they've all been worn and, you know, they're almost like threadbare in some, in some instances, you know. Most of them are made of silk still or, or silk and polyester. And so they, they still have this kind of strength. But to me, it's the kind of um, blending them, combining them, linking them, you know, all these saris from India and from my family, et cetera, and kind of creating this connection between women of the Indian diaspora, wherever they are. It's a celebration of their labor. And it's also a kind of statement about their presence, which is often ignored. Speaking of invisible labor, I want to talk to you about your perspective from the margins, from various margins, and how you feel your perspective from the margins has empowered you and given you space to find your own voice. I think there's so many margins that I feel like I've occupied. They overlap like Venn diagrams, but, <laughs> you know, being, being an immigrant, puts you in the margins, right? You're not part of the system per se, right? You know, growing up being Guyanese, you're not really part of the South Asian community. You know, some people let you in, but because you don't speak the language, you're in that margin. And then of course you're um, in the margin of mainstream, you know, American culture, not allowed to date, not allowed to go out, not allowed to do so many things, uh, at least in my family. And studying art, of course, like just a, a strange thing. Uh, so there's that margin. There's the margin that's created with age, you know, being a middle-aged woman, you know, that's not the um, the time that usually one has their moment of art, you know, in art making. Um, and there's also, you know, the margin of, you know, I was living in Denver for quite some time. I'm in LA now. And so, you know, Denver has a lot of artwork and artists, making and creating, but like many small, smaller communities and cities in 
the country, especially in the middle of the country or in the south of the country, there are not a lot of opportunities to communicate and to um, connect with the bigger art circles and networks. And I think that because of all those margins, and there's many more, right? I mean, being ill and all these things, it kind of puts you in this place where if you're, if you're happy to be in that place and if you're willing to uh, join that place and that space of complete and utter freedom in a way, because if no one cares what you're doing, <laughs> then it doesn't matter what you're doing. You just do what you wanna do. Ultimately, every day, I wanna come to my studio and make whatever I wanna make. And I wanna have complete creative freedom. And all of those kind of marginal identities, if you will, have contributed to the desire in me to guard that, to really keep that alive, but also wanting to engage and share the work. So, you know, there's, there's that sort of, um, that wonderful space of, of being an outsider. But it, you know, but then there's the space of sharing that's so exciting too. So there's just always this tension. No artist is going to say, right. oh yeah, I love being ignored. It's so much better to be working from a position where you feel like you have audiences if you want them. Exactly. But you are one of the artists who I really note maximize the value of the space being in the margins gave you. And what you've done with that freedom is come up with something that so many people have never seen before which expands the visual lexicon of the whole culture. I don't want to say, oh, you're lucky that people were ignoring you for a while. <laughs> like, I don't want to say that. <laughs> no, uh, you know, it's funny because it was, it was a hard place to be, you know, in some ways. You know, now I look back at it and realize how precious that time was, you know, and invigorating. But it was a hard place to be. And many artists feel that, right? It's important to have the dialogue. And I think that requires an audience. So I feel really grateful to be in the position I am in now to be able to share the work. You have a sorry sculpture called Circular Thinking. It's very lovely, like circular forms in it. And so it's kind of a play on words, I know. But my understanding of circular logic is like neither the conclusion nor the premise are proved. You're going in a circle of something where there's no evidence for either, but they sort of evidence each other. And so I love that as a monument where the future in some way resolves the premise of the past if we decide that it will. I love that. <laughs> I'm sure there's like a philosophy professor like gagging hearing me I try know. to talk about. That philosophy professor would be my husband. I'm sure he'd be gagging. Oh no. Is your husband a philosophy professor? He is. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to be like, Phil doesn't understand what circular logic is or something. No, I don't know. No, it, no. It, it means whatever we decide it means. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, um, your work really thinks about future heritage in a way that feels very liberating and feels very empowering. Thank you, Phil. I have children and I think, I think a lot about future generations and there's a lot to be scared about you know, but there's a lot of inheritance that is quite beautiful as well. And so it's something that I think about a lot. It's evidence in the work. Another thing you incorporate into a lot of the works in this Osmosis show is um, pages from a design book, a historical design book. 
Yes. So it's a compendium of ornament called The Grammar of Ornament. And it's either Owen James or Owen Jones. I always get that wrong. Uh, But he's a British um, scholar. And he put together this book, uh, this beautiful book with these beautiful pages of ornament, you know, replications of ornament from architecture, from design, from textiles, etc. But it's problematic in so many ways. It essentially, well, it essentializes different cultures across the world. So, for example, the Greco-Roman tradition, uh, the European tradition has many pages, just like those old, you know, world history books that had two chapters on Asia and Africa, etc. This book does that as well. And so it becomes very problematic. And so I'm using those pages and kind of uh, reworking them, re-envisioning them, combining them with new materials, and kind of, in a way, deconstructing the colonial mentality behind them. It really is brazen. Owen Jones said that he was creating a design book that was supposed to establish like the new look of British design for the 19th century. I mean, it's absurd just liberally stealing it from another culture and then claiming it as your new thing, as your new look. I mean, it's a beautiful book. That's the thing. It's like, it's, you're lured by the pages. Uh, but yeah, the, the conceptual framework is just, you know, a bit problematic. I have a question about the Indian diaspora as it relates to your work and as you address it or speak to it in your work. Um, the, there's a diasporic element, I gather, that goes east and a diasporic element that extends west. And the element and the history that seems most prevalent in your work is the element that goes west. Is that? That's a great question. Um, I would say I'm mostly, uh, I've mostly researched and, and understand the trajectory from uh, South Asia, you know, um, to South and North America and the Caribbean, through the Caribbean. Uh, But I think what it is, is that the migrations that come from South Asia and go to like, you know, Indonesia, et cetera, were very early on. So, so many generations before. And so there's a, there's kind of a more of a disconnect for me in that, in that um, uh, direction. So I think the kind of diasporas I'm thinking about are more from the last 200 years. Thank you. Um, that's That makes sense based on just sort of what I understand about your work. And forgive me if this is off base, but the reason I ask that question is because so much of your work feels to me like it's rooted in play. And I don't mean like meaningless play or anything. I mean like meaningful, thoughtful play. And one of the things that you seem to most enjoy playing with is colonialism and that legacy of colonialism. So it it sort of makes sense to me that you go in that geographical direction because that's the direction most of us think of in terms of colonialism's legacy of meddling with South Asia and Africa and the Caribbean with slavery and indentured servitude. Yeah, and I you know it's the legacy of my own family. Uh, who were indentured laborers. So uh, there's that connection. Uh, yes, and you're spot on. It's the colonial legacy, the, the European colonial um, 
impact on uh, South Asia that I'm interested in, for sure. Does that resonate with you, that idea that a lot of your work is rooted in play? A hundred percent. Every time I make something, I allow my intuition to lead. And as a result, there's a kind of magic that happens that is partially controlled and partially not controlled. And in that space, there's a lot of room for kind of the the uncanny or the, for lack of a better word, a kind of magic that I can't control. And as a result, there's that kind of brings me joy. And I hope the work some joy. There's like levity, I think, that I'm interested in. So, you know, yes, there th- these are very serious topics. But as in anyone's family legacy or history or ancestry, we look at both the dark and the light. And I think that we all kind of are aware of the dark legacy of colonialism, and it's something to be addressed for a long time. But for me, it's the materials and their potential and their histories that allow me to have this humor, because ultimately, I want my work to bring joy to people. I want them to think and understand, but I also want them to have this sense of, like you said, joy and hope and, you know, of future possibilities. What do you mean when you use the word hope? You know, so much of my work is about capturing and retelling and sharing stories that are from my family, right? Just things that my grandparents told me, weird stories and folk tales and all of these things interject and intertwine through the work. And it's a way of preserving that, or you know, through oral history, um, our past. But on a, on a macro level, I feel as though, you know, when I was a child, there, I didn't have other South Asian artists that I could see in museums to look up to or to think about or to, to understand that, okay, well, I could be an artist as well. I had none of that. And so for me, the act of making art as a South Asian woman in my culture is, is you know, or was, I should say, um, you know, a kind of hopeful and political act. Um, so, on a, so on a macro level, I want the work, yes, to create this world anew that we can occupy and live in a very socially just way. Does that make sense? Like you share the work, you share the stories, people become aware and, you know, not just aware, but maybe empathetic towards this past. And I think it's through mutual understanding that we all kind of connect with one another, right? It's like when you see, you know, a lot of people who have fear of strangers, right? They, it's because of the unknown. It's because they're unknown and we can't relate. And so by sharing, you know, through artwork, through writing, through music, all these other cultural ideas, I think we become less monstrous to people who don't understand us, right? As immigrants and as others. That's the macro level. On a micro level for me, this joy and hope, you know, I don't share this story very often, but for many, many years, 
I couldn't make art. I was over-medicated. I wasn't able to even think or create. And so the medications changed and all of a sudden I awoke. It was a really joyous moment. And since that moment, it was only about six years ago, to be honest. And since that moment, I reinvented my practice. I am grateful every day because it's like having a new life. And so on that micro level and personal level, there's hope there. Thank you for sharing that and talking about that. I know that's not easy um, to talk about, but of course, those kind of personal details and your work as an artist are intertwined. It is. And I think there's the sense of um, fear uh, about being like pigeonholed into something. Well, you're, you're the bipolar artist or you're the this or you're the that. And I think that we're complex humans, you know, art, uh, not just artists, everyone, right? But artists are complex humans. And I think that if we share more of these moments, we can find joy and connect to one another and find hope. I mean, it can be an empty word, but for me, it's kind of, it marks a sense of like potential. Hearing you talk about hope, it makes me think of some of the works that you've done that are really illustrative of some of the concepts you're talking about. In particular, I'm thinking of a work called The Garden, which shows a woman outside in front of a group of people. She's walking away from the people, and you've embroidered around her this like glowing fire, and there's these like bolts of gold shooting out of her in every direction. It's, it looks like a old colonial picture. I'm not familiar with the original picture. You've surrounded it with pages from the grammar of ornament. And then you've added to it to give it this sort of mystical, fantastical um, spirit of just explosion and color. Okay. So the original work was a print, an etching, and it, I, I don't know exactly who the figure was, but I think it was a monk or someone who seemed estranged, right, from, from society. And so it was that sort of ostracized figure and sort of empathy for that figure that drove the creation of that work. And so I reimagined it in a different time and place. I reimagined that character as a woman and the play, you know, it's just overly dramatic, right? I mean, these characters are like, they're cringing in, in the presence of this figure. There is humor in it. It's like very serious in some ways, but also very funny, I think. You know, the hyperbole with, you know, all the, you know, the shooting lines and the, the bindies and the color, because the color is reserved just for her. You know, it just creates this kind of moment of like overly dramatic humor, I think, in a, in a way. But yet a kind of potent message of, ostracization and difference and all of that. So you've really taken this found object, this found image, and added this whole new, um, this whole new context to it, all this flair and all this drama and humor and excitement and, and possibility, literally um, writing hope and possibility into a relic, an artifact from a past that isn't what 
we maybe would have liked it to be. Yeah, that's how I feel with the found objects. You know, what it is, is like you find the object and it has an aura and you kind of take that aura, combine it with other materials and create this new story that sometimes is so disparate. I mean, the objects are so disparate that they, of course, create this sense of you know, humor or the uncanny or something like that. And uh, I think the excitement and the humor also comes in just using different materials and combining them in ways that you wouldn't expect. Another totally unexpected image that you've created using, again, pages from the Grammar of Ornament is a work called The Artist at Rest. It's this image of an artist face down on a bed asleep kind of having her dreams haunted by the pages from this book. But one of the funny things about this picture is that you've painted the artist like a Smurf. It's like this blue creature with this white hair. It looks exactly like Smurfette to me. You know, it's really funny. I know I, I wanted it to be funny, right? I mean, the whole idea of the artist at rest, like when are we ever at rest, first of all? But then also, um, you know, sometimes there's this disconnect between, I mean, for me, between what my body can sustain and what my mind, you know, is is doing. And so the Smurf, I wasn't thinking exactly of, of Smurfs, but I was, I did grow up with the Smurfs, but uh, but I was thinking about stylization and and having this kind of cartoon element to it uh, with the kind of exaggerated perspective and the like garish like color combinations and all of that. But yeah, and then the tree at the top is just like this sense of like, rebirth and like regrowth and all of that kind of stuff. I love the tree element of it because Owen Jones specifically wrote about idealizing nature, that the purpose of art was to idealize nature. And so in the midst of this flattened, idealized um, depiction of nature, you've added this organic hand-drawn image of a tree, real nature overcoming the idealization of nature. And I love how the book is literally haunting the dreams of the artist. You know, when you think about colonialism and, you know, and, and you know, all these like complex issues of like gender and race and all these things, it's like, it's heavy, right? It's heavy all the time. And, um, you know, there's different ways to address, to address it. And I think I just, uh, I allow myself the freedom to try different ways to address the topics. The last work I'd love to ask you about in that context is a work you titled Fitting In, which really addresses all of these topics that we've that we've been discussing. Could you tell me a little bit about that work and the show that you made it for? Sure. So uh, the show was called Herself as Another. And the idea coming from different kind of cultural backgrounds and having these layers like we all do how do we fit in? What is this idea of fitting in and what are we fitting into? And so I've made a number of works using furniture that kind of reflects or alludes to colonial furniture, right? Like furniture of that era. And so I often take that furniture and then, you know, through humor or through intervention, create some kind of oddly <laughs> some kind of oddity, I guess. And so in that work, I, I wanted to convey this the sense of what it is to fit in. And it's like abs- absurdist, right? So there's all the all the all the material on the top 
is kind of intertwined and uncomfortable. But then they, the fringe kind of creates this kind of like funny, like decorative element, almost like, hey, I'm trying to fit in. <laughs> but I, but I stand out like, you know, I stand out in such a funny way. But then both of those elements are embedded within that colonial furniture. Seeing all this twisted up, you know, tubing and um, material stacked up on this table, I can't help but think about the history of the ready-made and Marcel Duchamp. And it seems again like you're like you're at play here, playing with art history in maybe the same way that you play with colonialism. Yeah, I spent so many years thinking about art history. I, you know, I think when I finally allowed myself to be an artist. There was all of that in my in my head, you know, like after my MFA and all that, I started thinking, you know, I kept trying to make work that fit into this, not academic, but this kind of Western framework. And I felt like it was kind of boring, like not the Western framework, but my work that tried to fit in within it. And because it didn't feel authentic, you know. And so when I awoke, let's say uh, six, seven years ago, I, I laugh about it, but it was like no funny matter. But I just decided to just go with it, whatever, you know, what, whatever felt natural, organic and real for me was what was going to lead me and lead the work. You've been listening to Mixed Media, a podcast by Kavi Gupta. Mixed Media is a window opened unexpectedly onto a landscape of ideas, featuring a rotating cast of artists, curators, writers, art collectors, and members of the Kavigupta staff, casually discussing the sweetness, mystery, and chaos of great art in front of a microphone. Thank you to my guest, Suchitra Matai, a multidisciplinary artist whose work tells visual stories that touch on her Indo-Caribbean heritage. Blending painting, sculpture, and installation with methods suggestive of domestic labor, which she learned from her grandmother, Suchitra's work addresses such topics as the legacy of colonialism and relationships between culture and gender roles. Suchitra received an MFA in painting and drawing and an MA in South Asian art from the University of Pennsylvania. Her work is in the collection of Crystal Bridges Museum of Art, Denver Art Museum, TIA Collection, and Tampa Museum of Art, among many others. Recent exhibitions include In the Adjacent Possible at John Michael Kohler Arts Center, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, Form Forecast at MCA Chicago, and Breathe into the Past, Cross Currents in the Caribbean at the Colorado Fine Arts Center, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Her current exhibition, Osmosis, is on view at Kavi Gupta Elizabeth Street in Chicago. Kavi Gupta amplifies voices of diverse and underrepresented artists to expand the canon of art history. Through innovative and ambitious exhibitions, multimedia programming, and rigorous publications, we foster an evolving conversation among international communities about art and ideas. In addition to hosting more than a dozen major exhibitions each year and participating in vital international art fairs, we host Artist Talks, facilitate special programming in support of philanthropic causes, and foster intellectual discourse by regularly bringing artists, curators, and collectors together with academics and experts in the contemporary art field. My name is Ramsey Hoy. My name is Chanel Lacey. And my name is Philip Barcio. Thank you for listening to Mixed Media.